Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. This is our annual Fall Fertilizer Outlook episode. We have five members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser, uh, Nutrient Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota. I'm located out of the St. Paul campus. Hi, this is Jeff Vetch. I'm a Nutrient Management uh, Researcher at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. And I am Fabian Fernandez, also a nutrient management specialist located in the St. Paul campus, uh, focused on nitrogen management for corn cropping systems. Brad Carlson, I'm an extension educator. I work out of the Mankato Regional Office and work statewide. And I'm Lindsay Pease, and I'm a nutrient and water management specialist based out of the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. So starting off, what are growing conditions looking like around the state? Well, to start out with uh, maybe a more positive looking uh, corner of the state, we've had a lot of good rain this spring, which is a total opposite situation of, of last year for us in the Northwest. And, you know, some of those have come down in some pretty heavy rains, um, including actually this past weekend, uh, you know, we had a storm with 80 mile an hour winds, which, you know, to be determined how much crop damage that may have caused. But besides that, we have been getting a lot of moisture. The moisture in the soil is looking really good. Um, we've had some nice, I've seen a lot of nice looking cornfields this year, which compared to last year is, is really positive. Um, it does depend a little bit on your crop though. I mean, I think the wheat it could, could use a little bit more rain at this point, the soybeans, uh, they probably got a little bit too much rain early on. I've seen some better stands of soybeans, but, um, you know, still to be determined how uh, things turn out for the rest of the summer. I'd say as you move south, uh, it's, it's really sporadic as far as what, what happened for precipitation. There's been a fair amount of talk in the media about drought. If you look at the the uh, weather services drought monitor drought index it doesn't really show or look real severe in minnesota there's sort of a bullseye from the twin cities kind of moving southwest but uh uh and, and really if you drive around the crops don't look just terrible either but i think everybody knows just from their observation that we just haven't been getting what's normal i think the thing is of course we're in the thunderstorm season now where we don't get these big uh, uh, pockets of rain that just park over top of us like they would in the springtime and the thunderstorms do tend to be very spotty i know uh, uh, jeff you were saying that the uh, recent uh, event you got at wasiki you had a couple inches and i'm 13 miles from the s rock and i only got about a quarter of an inch and that's kind of what we've been seeing uh, all over the place and so you know when we come to to the point of where we're going to start making some some uh, recommendations uh, based on soil conditions for nutrient management uh, uh, it's going to be quite variable a lot of farmers are actually going to have very different conditions just on the the land that they run yeah i think that's a great point brad and and we did kind of we were the part of the haves on saturday and there's still a lot of have nots in the area we got two and a half inches of rain on saturday which was desperately needed um, we were about three to three and a half inches below growing season normal up until that point. So now we're pretty close to normal again. Our distribution has been weird all year. Uh, we were wet early and had delayed planting, but you only, like Brad said, you only had to go 10 miles south of Wasika and 
down by the New Richland area, they planted on time and they were, you know, everything was perfect, but they didn't get the rain that we got in early May. You know, currently we're looking actually quite good uh, corns, VTR1, uh, even some of the later planted corn here at the S Rock is starting to show some tassels today, I noticed. Uh, GDUs, interestingly, even though we planted a lot later than last year, our GDUs are actually slightly ahead of last year, which was a very warm year. So that's a GDUs we start uh, recording, of course, on May 1st, and not all the corn was planted May 1st. But uh, as far as getting this crop to maturity, I don't think that'll be a problem. But Brad, spot on. It, it's very, very spotty around southern Minnesota with uh, areas that had have had adequate rainfall and areas that haven't. I've been in southeast Minnesota quite a bit here the last uh few weeks and in general the counties around i-90 and south have had plenty of moisture and the very southeastern most counties have had probably a, almost excessive moisture in the rochester area and north there's there's a few spots that are that are drier um, but in general the crops look really good over there and one uh, thing that i've noticed as well and this happens every year where we start getting dry is uh, the soil conditions uh, those soils that have been you know, till correctly, that have not been compacted. Those are the soils where you have uh, more of a reserve in terms of collecting water and saving it for, for this time of the, the year when it tends to get dry and the crops really need a lot of water and, and soils where there have been poor soil management. That's where you start to see uh, the droughty conditions happening quicker. So just just as, uh, as an observation uh, that seems to happen every year when we get to, to this time of the, the season. And I, I was uh, I was at an event over the weekend, a uh, tractor show, surprise, surprise. Uh, I had a chance to interact with a lot of people from all over the place. And the one thing I'm hearing consistently is that the light textured soils, so when you get like in that St. Cloud area where there's a lot of sandy soils, any of that stuff that's not irrigated is really in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, obviously the, the irrigation, uh, people set up for irrigation that's been rolling and that's fine. But, uh, and, and I would say that even in my own area that, you know, I live near a lake and there's can be some sandy pockets. Those areas look awful. Uh, they, there's probably not much to be expected of those, uh, but the heavier textured soils are still sort of holding in. Yeah, and um, it's interesting you mentioned that, Brad. I did a study a few years back when we actually had pretty good precipitation during the growing season and still in those soils with um, sandy uh, textures, even with what you would say adequate rain through the whole growing season, I think the average was about 70 bushel difference between a site that was irrigated versus not irrigated at the uh, kind of control with no nothing else, uh, no inputs of nitrogen or anything. And then as you, of course, increase nitrogen rate, that, that gap got bigger um, with or without the irrigation. So I, I am not surprised if we see more of these dry conditions where that crop will really get hurt. Last year was in some of the irrigated versus non-irrigated studies, we saw, you know, zero yield in the non-irrigated, even at high end rates, uh, the obviously nitrogen was not the limiting factor, it was, it was water. Yeah, we took off, um, you know, first or second crop alfalfa, that was about the week after the fourth. Um, 
And it was interesting at Rosemont. I mean, they're just, uh, I mean, anybody, I, if you don't know that station, there's a couple different areas there. One is more kind of more would be similar to some of the irrigated soils around the Hastings area, which is a Waukegan. Uh, it's a silt loam, but it's got a uh, sand subsoil underneath of it. Uh, so at, at alfalfa on one of those soils versus one that was on a deeper lus, more, you know, consistent with the southeast part of the state and just the difference in tonnage was incredible on that and kind of, you know, boils back to water holding capacity. So, I mean, you're going to see a lot of those areas, particularly if you've got lighter areas in mean, this year, and it's, it's pretty easy to see on that. We'll see that area hadn't gotten a lot of rain. Um, it, it has, so kind of see what third crop does if they're more closer, because I, you know, if I get adequate rain, I get some pretty decent yield off of that. Uh, some of that uh, lighter soil there, but um you know, a definite difference in what you're seeing in terms of the capacity of some of these soils to hold water in some of these areas that have rain. It kind of, I think, leads me to believe we had a fair amount of recharge in the spring, which is kind of helping us. But, you know, getting now into that R1 stage, you know, towards the end of July, we're, I think, really kind of at that critical stage where you start um, running out of moisture now. We're really going to start suffering some pretty significant yield losses, particularly for corn. What is the current status of fertilizer prices and availability in Minnesota? Well, I was talking with a farmer friend of mine this morning, and he had some price quotes uh, from middle of June, and they're still looking at MAP at right in around 1,000, potash at about 900. Uh, he had a price quote for urea at uh, 670, uh, although I think uh, you know we do want to kind of point out the fact that we've really not been recommending urea applications for this fall. And, and you know, I, I think one of the, the themes that kind of came through last winter when we were talking about a lot of the fertilizer price issues was exactly where availability was going to be. And of course, one of the things we also talked a little bit about was, uh, you know, the, whether your retailer was going to actually have product available. Um, they have a lot of sensitivity to putting product in inventory and then having falling prices and potentially having to sell it for a loss. So the fact that there's urea quotes out there uh, tells me that some retailers did stock up on probably more urea than they should have. And there is a chance that price is going to, to fall out. Uh, uh, so um you know watch it i guess that's the you know we can we can uh elaborate a little more on that in a little bit but i know paul you found some fertilizer prices too recently posted online yeah so dtn the progressive farmer russ quinn um his fertilizer report um from july 20th has urea down 10 percent from last month um, on a price per pound of nitrogen basis, uh, urea was 94 cents per pound, anhydrous 88 cents. Uh, so anhydrous is going about 14.50 per ton. Um, yeah, if you're looking at uh, compared to last year, you know, MAP is 44%, still 44% more expensive than than last year, and anhydrous is 100% uh, higher compared to last year, and everything else is somewhere in between those. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to see those trends. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Paul. Is that uh, you know most most growers are going to prepay, and last year they would have prepaid in July or August for the 2022 growing season, and they paid prices. Their prepay prices at that time were, you know, like you said, 40 to 45 percent less than they're looking at right now. So the reality of these prices is just starting to hit them, and that and that is really concerning. Well, another element that kind of set up last fall 
Uh, particularly, we were hearing a lot of this as we were traveling around the state doing uh, educational meetings was um, because the increasing prices really kind of blindsided a lot of people, they were getting faced with, uh, uh, or, or I should say approached uh, by their retailers, their dealers about changing their application practices. And very specifically, a lot of retailers were able to get uh, anhydrous in the fall and uh, moved uh, a lot of that product. And, and so there's a lot of producers who may not have planned on doing a fall anhydrous application who did uh, because they were able to get a price and get it on and then not worry about what it was going to be in the spring. You know, as far as that being a, a uh, reasonable management practice, I think the parts of the state where that happened, it was fine and it worked out fine. Um, I, I think the real take home though is, is that the, the farmers themselves probably had some, some thoughts in their head or management plans in their head, what they intended to do, and then they ended up doing something else. And so uh, that's at least another note of caution here as we're sitting in the middle of summertime, maybe be starting to have some conversations with those retailers about what this is going to look like. Because I know one of the things that really changed a lot was that that uh, we'd been seeing this increasing trend for split application and some side dress and and there really wasn't nearly the, ex the extent of that this year uh, as there has been in the last uh, uh, few years and I think a lot of that was because producers got worried about whether N was going to be available and they just put it all on early. So what should growers be thinking about heading into fall? Yeah, what? it's about it's about this time of the year where I always get a a couple of calls and uh or talk to some growers people that work in the area and people that maybe work here and part-time farm and and they look at their prescription maps as they start looking at uh picking on it or determining what they're going to apply and and there's a lot of concern about there you know the out there and and it should be as we mentioned earlier you know the prices are way higher than they prepaid last year for they knew that they saw that coming up as the price ran up last winter and into the spring but they've also seen in the last few weeks corn and commodity prices starting to decline a little bit. And that is really a, a problem when you start looking at what the cost of production is going to be for this 2023 crop. Um, we don't have Melissa with us today, but we also have to think about manure and making sure that we utilize that manure at its best capacity. And that is uh, you know, fall application, especially something like uh uh finishing manure that has a high ammonium content we want to get that on out there as late as possible make sure that we utilize all that nitrogen and don't put it out too early yeah and you know coming back to uh, what brad mentioned in terms of best practices i think it's so important uh, when when prices are so volatile and there is so much uncertainty um to remember the things that we are certain about um you know there is nothing we can do about the price we kind of had to deal with it as it comes but uh the things that we are certain about is some of the best management practices that we have been talking about for years um and so whether the price is high or low or the availability is high or low that doesn't change the fact that you know fall urea especially uh in in south central minnesota and and really and truly throughout the state uh based on some of the stuff that we have done recently it's just not a good practice um regardless of what the price of nitrogen is we've we've looked at that we know that we lose nitrogen and we lose yield uh 
and we've looked at doing all sorts of different things with urea in the fall to see if we could improve the efficiency of that fertilizer. Um, banding it, applying it with an inhibitor, um, and of course, waiting until the soil temperatures are low, anything like that. And none of those practices ever yielded more than a spring application of the, of the same amount of nitrogen. And so uh, those are the things that we know for sure. So it gets kind of panicky at, at times with with the uncertainty on prices, but just remember at least those things, the, the things that we know for sure. And so when we are looking at high prices, of course, we are we need to be looking at what is the most efficient way to, to apply fertilizers. And so sticking to to the best management practices is a key a key component. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things to consider on this is um, you know, say you put on fall urea, I mean it you know, all of our data says you're likely going to lose a portion of it, which isn't necessarily a good, you know, good uh, practice in general from a PR standpoint, particularly, um, you know, we, since we know that that's likely going to occur, and then you're come back in the spring, probably have to apply higher price fertilizer again anyway to make up for some of that loss. So, I mean, it's one of the things just just to really look at the data that's out there, and that's a pretty strong data set. I know that Fabian put together just looking at the, the potential yield loss from those those fall applications, uh, particularly in corn production. And we're looking at it right now in sugar beet production too. I know that's more of a standard practice as fall urea, particularly for some of the Southern growing regions. Um, last year wasn't probably the best year to test it because we didn't really necessarily have the rainfall to kind of move some of it out. So that's kind of a work in progress there with some of the other crops, but it's just one of the things I think to think about and then start prioritizing what makes the most sense for applications and that you know the best data that we have right now is with phosphorus um, that we know if you've got a good soil test i mean we know what the general risk is should you not apply phosphorus um, for a potential yield reduction and even with higher prices with map or dap near a thousand per ton we know generally if you're in that low to very low situation you're likely going to get a, a positive return on investment even with higher prices it's not going to be as good as you'd normally get but um, overall, those are areas that, you know, you want to be looking at targeting. And if you're medium and higher, you really can look at cutting back in that area. I mean, you don't really need that full rate. If you're not putting that 80 pounds removal on for your 250 bushel corn crop, you likely aren't going to see um, any effect for the 2023 crop. And I know some people may want to argue with that, but if you start looking at our data more and more, that even a, you know, a cut rate, um, it, one thing about it, you look at 40% of removal or less, you could put that on, would slow down your uh, decline, although your, your general decline in your soil test shouldn't be that rapid, where you couldn't um, avoid uh, putting it on for a year or two. I mean, the other things are look at your starter practices, you know, you may or may not need that, or maybe you can get away with just a starter and in some of those areas. So I think with phosphorus, there's much more flexibility. Potassium is kind of an unknown, um, just on my standpoint, because of the soil test change can change drastically just over time from dry conditions. And we know that we get into the fall, if we get a dry year, that they tend to be a little bit lower. And likely that a lot of that's because we've got a lot of potassium, in the residue that hasn't washed out. So that's the one I'd be a little bit careful on. I mean, if you're around 150 part per million in most of your fields, you know, I would, you know, just be a little less, um, you know, inclined to cut potassium 
um, versus, you know, my, all my fields are 20 part per million Bray phosphorus or plus, it's a pretty easy one to make that decision. So I think it's just going to be sitting down and looking at, you know, where you're at, because if you have built your soil tests up, if you're in a situation where you can do that, you know, they always talk about the soil as a bank, it's a good time to withdraw. And then if we get lower prices, you know, the other question then conversely is, should I up my rate? And, you know, that's, you know, just kind of a question on, on your overall economics, but you know, in general, we've got good data, at least to kind of tell you what a good target point is, particularly for phosphorus, um, where you should be good, where you shouldn't really have to put on that, that high removal rate if you're looking at a, a place to cut costs. Um, in nitrogen, we already adjust for that. I mean, that's what the recommendations adjust for, so we can kind of play around with that a little bit in terms of the prices. But um, but some of these other ones, I would just start looking at, uh, if you aren't soil sampling, I mean, it's kind of what we say every year, it's a good time to start doing it because the overall price of soil analysis, you see that remain relatively stable. I think it's good information to have going into 2023 if you're looking at making a decision on, on when and where to apply phosphorus in some of the fields. And, um, you know, coming back to the timing of application and some of the things that we've talked about, um, especially for nitrogen, I think, um, delaying the application until the spring when it's it's is the best time to do the application anyway it adds flexibility to your whole operation i, I mean uh, potentially we are looking at areas in the state where it could be pretty dry hopefully things will get uh, good we'll have good crops but you know what if we are in a situation like we were last year where we ended up uh, with residual nitrogen or this spring where we were kind of late, uh, it was cool and somewhat wet and we got delayed planting. And if you already apply nitrogen, you're basically set. You're, um, <laughs> there, is no, there is nothing you can do in terms of adjusting things. You already put that investment out in the field. If you delay that application until the spring or even side rest time, you have a lot more flexibility um, in how to manage that nitrogen application to your best, um, uh, to the best conditions based on what you already know about that growing season. So uh, that flexibility can be extremely important. Um, holding off and wait, waiting, uh, I think is, is uh, very, very important. And then as Dan mentioned, you know, um, in terms of, prioritizing things. Uh, nitrogen, obviously, is, is one that uh, we, we definitely need to prioritize. Uh, I would highly recommend looking at the nitrogen rate calculator because that already, uh, knowing the price of corn and knowing the price of nitrogen, it will allow you to determine where the economic optimum is. So you will get the, the best um, return on the investment. And then down from nitrogen to phosphorus and potassium, as Dan mentioned, I think it's so important to prioritize. Look at uh, your soil test values for those two nutrients and figure out whether you need both of them, whether you need more of one and not so much of the other. In my experience, typically people tend to go for kind of the priority is nitrogen and then phosphorus and then last potassium. And based on my experience from, from, from before, typically, um, potassium should be more of a priority in some sites where there is plenty of phosphorus to go around. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, as we went around the state talking about the different planting conditions we experienced, I think a lot of crops went in late, which is also going to give you less time to put in 
fertilizer this fall. So in case you need an extra motivation to maybe wait until spring, I think, you know, the extra time that it might take to, to do that application, that's just another reason to maybe sit tight and, and wait until the spring, especially, you know, I think a lot of guys in the Northwest, it's, it's always scary to do that, uh, especially when we have wet springs and, and a lot of flooding, but this could be a good year to, to maybe try that, maybe go with, um, as Dan mentioned, a starter uh, fertilizer, especially for phosphorus. I think you could probably, you know, it's a good year to, to maybe experiment with that. I think one last thing I'd like to mention uh, in this regard is that last year we focused a lot on the potential for uh, residual carryover nitrogen nitrates in the soil. Uh, we had some a lot of conversation about uh, soil testing for that. And of course, where we're dry this year, we're going to have that potential again going into next year. But it's uh, it's worth mentioning that because nitrates are so mobile in the environment, uh, they're prone to, to leach or to denitrify, that uh, unless you're out on the western side of the state, we really don't recommend taking that test in the fall. So it's a, a point worth thinking about out that uh, we may have some carryover nitrogen and particularly uh, you know if you're in the central part of the state south central part of the state and you're looking at putting on fall uh, anhydrous uh, you may think about uh, lowering your rate if you're particularly and if you're in a situation that's had a manure history uh, or if it's corn on corn and it's been quite dry uh, you very well could see a nitrogen credit for next year uh, however we probably aren't going to want to see most of those producers soil sample and credit that until the springtime uh, when we can be more certain that the results are usable for that. Uh, and, and I guess the last little point of that is if you do want to take that test, uh, make sure you got an area that you didn't apply some nitrogen on. So if you put a half rate on, uh, for instance, uh, you're probably not able to soil sample that anymore and get an accurate usable result for nitrogen credit. So there has to be at least a little sliver there uh, for you to be able to sample that had no, no fall nitrogen applied or else we aren't really going to know what's out there. So I'm going to pose this question actually to, you know, a few of you that have been out looking at some of the fields. I mean, how does the the deficiency for nitrogen look this year? I mean, it, to me, looking at some of the, my fields, I mean, I can start to see some of my, my zero end plots, but it hasn't necessarily been as, as striking as I've seen the last few years. And you look at some of these wetter areas too. I just drove through one, um, kind of closer to Spring Valley coming up Highway 63 uh, recently and, you know, water sitting around there, but you still, everything looks pretty green. So just kind of curious, um, you know, we talk a lot about carryover, but it may be kind of an indicator in some of these fields that there was something there that, you know, seemingly even if we did lose some right now, which we should be if the uh, if it's warm and the, the soils are saturated, that um, we're not going to be quite as bad of a situation maybe than we were last year when it seemed like we had more uh, uh, more striking nitrogen deficiencies. That's exactly right, Dan. In fact, I was chatting with somebody about this this very thought because it's so dry. Some of the areas like where I'm at, it's so dry in that top foot, but the crop looks really good as well. If we did have a lot of carryover end from last year, there's a chance that end was deeper. And so if we're using deeper water reserves and there's nitrogen down there, it's still feeding the crop. And that's a good thing uh, uh, because we're using that nitrogen then and, and not losing it to the environment. But I, I think there's there's definitely is the the possibility that we've got some deeper nitrogen that's still left over from last year, uh, that that uh, these deeper water reserves, as uh, as the plants are picking that up and staying you know, fairly green. But I know, like Jeff, you guys have had some experience at Wasika 
where green crop this time of year doesn't necessarily mean it won't still run out by the end of the year. Yeah, that's true, Brad. Um, and and I would agree though with what Dan had said earlier, and what you mentioned, Brad, is that I I think over the last two weeks I probably scouted uh, eight or nine nitrogen studies and looked at every plot. And my general consensus would be is that the end response uh, curve or the amount of end that's going to be needed this year is going to be less than we've seen over the last three or four years. And I think that makes sense because we came out of a relatively dry year last year. There's probably some residual end left over in many fields. And we've also had minimal end stress. Now here at Waseca, we did have a really high rainfall event in, in mid-June that probably contributed to some denitrification. But prior to that, we hadn't seen a lot of nitrogen stress or nitrogen uh, loss conditions being being extensive. So what I see right now is, you know, nitrogen rates that are less than 100 pounds are starting to start to look yellow and have some lower leaves that are starting to be nitrogen deficient in both corn on corn, corn after beans. But in uh, corn after soybeans, uh, the MRTNs right now look like they could be, you know, in the low hundreds um, and certainly not above 150. And corn on corn, it, it's just hard to say because, boy, I, until this rain last week, our corn on corn was really struggling. And when it struggles, um, it it it's hard to tell what an optimum nitrogen rate is going to be when it was so so uh, stressed for moisture. Yeah, and uh, in, we did uh, measure some of that this spring in terms of residual, and there was quite a bit. And and as Jeff mentioned, there was really not a lot of potential for nitrogen loss this spring. Uh, and so I, I highly suspect that there is quite a bit. And as Brad mentioned, as we go into the season and the roots go deeper for water, they will tap into some of that nitrogen. Um, so I, I think as long as we have moisture to carry the crop through, we, we will be in a better situation needing less nitrogen than in previous years. The other part, of course, too, is mineralization. And, and that has um, its influence very much by, by moisture. So if we have adequate moisture conditions which improve the, the crop, they will also uh, increase the amount of mineralization. Remember that this spring was kind of cool early on. I mean, there was uh, moisture, but it was cool. And so mineralization was yeah, slower early on. And then as the soils warmed up, then uh, there was plenty of moisture and I suspect there was quite a bit of mineralization happening as well. And if we continue to have moisture later in the season, that process will, will continue to kick in nitrogen for the crop. Yeah, I think the majority of the, the deficiencies I saw early on were striping due to sulfur. I know Lindsay up your way, um, I had one of my studies up there, I had one that had 100, close to 100 pounds of sulfur applied between the fall and the spring applications that is still striped. And then I saw a fair amount at Rosemont. Um, so that was kind of a big one. I mean, it wasn't as much nitrogen early on as it was looking like sulfur deficiency. Now, some of the fields seemingly have kind of started to come out of that funk, but they're, um, you know, still it was one of the things I think I saw more often than not this spring was sulfur uh, versus nitrogen. What about products that aim to increase fertilizer efficiency? Should more growers consider them? Well, you know, that's uh, coming back to the, the, uh, 
what we were talking with prices and things like that, that's always uh, a really tempting thing to, to look into is, you know, what is out there that can help improve the efficiency. And um, as I mentioned before, the best management practices, that's really where you need to be grounded, uh, the things that we know for sure that work. And, um, and that includes um, inhibitors, yeah, nitrification inhibitors. Uh, now, the temptation a lot of times is to do a poor job in terms of when to apply nitrogen and then use an inhibitor to to save yourself uh, from that bad practice, right? And it, that doesn't work, you know? <laughs> Two negatives doesn't mean a, a positive. Um, and so if you're, you know, applying nitrogen in the fall, and you say, well, I will use an eutrophication inhibitor so that it makes it better. Well, our research shows consistently that that doesn't work. The inhibitors, uh, the nitrification inhibitors, they have a um, life expectancy. If you apply them at the wrong time, let's say too early when it's uh, warm, they will break down faster and they will they will not protect your investment. They will, uh, they will just simply wear out before uh, you need that protection. And so while, yes, they normally can help you, you have to use them correctly. Um, and the other part too is that they do add cost you to the total investment. And so um, I would say the best time where uh, nitrification inhibitor will pay off is when you do a fall application of anhydrous, for instance. I, again, with urea, we've tried it; uh, it doesn't work. So don't don't try applying a nitrification inhibitor with urea in the fall because it's not going to uh, to help you in any way. It will just add cost you to that application with anhydrous ammonia in the in the fall, uh, once the temperatures are below 50 degrees, that's where I would say an inhibitor has the most potential to help you. Uh, the second best place would be for anhydrous ammonia in a spring application if it's done uh, early in the spring. And then if you do applications later in the spring with anhydrous, then um, the potential of getting a benefit out of a nitrification inhibitor goes down just simply because um, it's less likely that you will lose or you have potential for loss of that nitrogen investment. So the, the inhibitor at that point doesn't really give you much additional protection. Um, and then, um, well, this may be a point for, for next spring, but uh, the, the other inhibitors that we normally talk about are urease inhibitors and those are very very important if you are uh, applying urea on the soil surface and you know that you will not be able to incorporate it uh, with tillage or with rain in time where you can potentially lose quite a bit of nitrogen but th those would be the things that uh, you know we we know we have more certainty that they they work uh, as long as we use them at the correct time and form and then of course there are many other products out there that um, uh, the research, I, I don't want to be uh, negative on these things, but uh, the research pretty consistently shows that there is very little potential to have a consistent benefit. Uh, you know, there are biologicals, there are many other products out there that kind of promise um, great efficiency, a reduction of, you know, 30 pounds or whatever. And uh, 
pretty consistently we don't really see that benefit out there and so my my suggestion would be to stick to to what you know that works and that has worked in the past and go with that well i think a lot of the fallacy that people think is that fertilizer prices really dictate how well these things will work particularly the inhibitors and it's not the case i mean there's a certain set of conditions where they tend to work you look at a lot of the data i mean um you know with fall nitrate you know the fall nitrification inhibitors that you know there will be a, a spot there where you know there will be some advantages but there probably be more times where there won't be so that's kind of the thing when we start talking about costs with fertilizer that it just adds to the overall cost as do any of these products and that's the thing that kind of concerns me about it is you know you know you likely could go in and add, you know and add a little bit or take the cost you'd be willing to spend on some of these products and put it into a few more pounds of fertilizer probably is going to have more of an effect with it so i mean we've been looking at a lot of these biologicals and you know while i think there's some promise there the consistency isn't there so that's the thing i guess i just caution people on some of these things it's still a situation where i'd try and see on some of this uh, before i would just completely treat all my acres uh, because this it all carries a cost and a lot of times you know that cost can be you know fairly substantial and you're maybe somewhere else that you could divert some of that um some of that money that makes sense so i just say you know we do a lot of testing on these things i haven't found a silver bullet you know Lindsay, i think you've been doing some testing you're kind of in the early stages of that um your area, a lot of times, phosphorus is kind of the big one that you're looking for ways to unlock the phosphorus that's there, and it's it's just not easy to do with with some of these products. So, uh, just be careful with that in terms of cost, because you know it might be a way you can at least make a few more bucks per acre by limiting some of these out out of the um, your overall fertility plan if they're going to give you a low return on investment. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, one other thing that I would mention is polymer coated urea. That's another one that uh, it, it has a, an added price compared to urea. And, and folks looked at that as well. Can I do that for fall applications? And again, we've looked at that and it just doesn't work. Um, you are way better off applying uh, polymer coated urea as a spring application and um, and being smart about it where to apply it to uh, that's that's the other important thing if you do a spring application with a polymer coated urea uh, targeting parts of the field where you know that potential for nitrogen loss is greater so you know uh, low laying areas in the field for instance that where you tend to have more moisture and more potential for denitrification or leaching areas in the field those will be the areas where maybe you can target an application of of these more expensive products that will do give you the protection that you need uh, but again with fall application we have looked at polymer coated urea and um, the the polymer you know again holds holds uh urea protects it for a while but by the time you really need the protection which is uh, in the spring that polymer is already breaking down and you the protection is simply not there anymore 
Yeah, and I think, you know, as far as the biologicals go, this is the second year of a trial that I've been working on with Paolo Pagliari at the Southwest Research and Outreach Center in Lamberton, and we both got kind of a dual trial going on where we're looking at, you know, inoculating some wheat plants with a bacteria and doing a rate study along with that. Last year, unfortunately, with the drought that we saw, we didn't get much of any, you know, results um, to speak of uh, off that. So I think this summer um, we should get some better results off that. And, you know, this winter we'll have some things to report. I also have a trial that we are spraying some source out there. Um, you know, if that's a product that people have heard of. So we are testing a few things, you know, as we always are. And uh, hopefully this winter we can have a little bit of data to share with you guys on, on those. But I absolutely agree with everybody else. Go with what you know. It's, it's really important when, you know, there are so many uncertainties, but we do actually feel pretty confident, you know, as, as a group on um, some of these, some of these things that we've been telling you for years. So um, that's, that's, I guess what I would kind of encourage everybody to just go with what you know uh, for this fall. All right. Any last words from the group? Yeah, Paul, you know, Dan mentioned this earlier and, and I, I think it's still worth touching on it. You know, I know there's a lot of growers that, that stopped soil testing in recent years and they just don't do it anymore. Um, part of it may be because they're, they're just putting on crop removal P and K and they just don't think it's necessary or they don't want to take the time or the spend the money on the analysis. But boy, when MAP and DAP are a thousand dollars a ton and Dan is right. Phosphorus is the nutrient that in many fields, especially in acid soils in South Central, Southeastern Minnesota, that they're most likely to be able to save fertilizer dollars on. You know, you could still, there's still time to take a soil sample after early harvest uh, this fall and adjust those phosphorus rates and save themselves some significant dollars. You're not locked into putting crop removal on every year, especially when your soil tests are in the high and very high categories. And I need to get a news release out just talking about removal because, you know, it's not important really to manage down to the pound. And that's where some growers get really focused, I think, on or the retailers on the factors that we recommend, particularly for removal or we suggest to use for removal that there's a window there. And so, you know, looking at these high rates, whether I put 40 units on or you put 80 units on, you've got a 250 bushel crop. I doubt you're going to see any difference the next year. With it. I mean, it's not a perfect system. And that's one of the things you've got to realize is that, you know, while, you know, there are some suggested factors to use that, you know, there is a there's there's some slop there. And so overall, managing down to the pound isn't overly important. I mean, you get to the low and very low, maybe um, where we see a high return where phosphorus is needed. But once you get to a certain point, you have a lot of flexibility. So I think that's really the thing to, rec to remember is that there is more flexibility than you think there is. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>